Hello, good morning, afternoon or evening. Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, the podcast brought to you by Cityco, Manchester's city centre management company. This is the June edition of Cottonmouth, slightly delayed by the wonderful Manchester Flower Festival that has just filled the squares and streets of the city centre. Thank you to everyone who exhibited, visited and commented, and of course to all of those who put the event on. This month we're looking at some untold stories, some sometimes overlooked parts of the city. We're talking about Contact, Contact Theatre as was, 50th anniversary, what it does for young people, what it puts on by young people, and how it balances production and making ends meet. And then we're talking to Co-ops UK, the umbrella body for cooperatives across the country, about the importance of the co-op model, the challenges around having a historic building, and the future of business governance. And we finish with a book club, talking to David Scott, author of The Excellent Mancunians, an oral history of the last 20 years or so that challenges many of the stereotypes and preconceived ideas about how Manchester has developed. We start with Keisha Thompson, Artistic Director and Chief Exec of Contact, one of the city's most interesting and vibrant artistic companies and institutions. So welcome, Keisha. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're here to talk about contact, but let's start stepping back a little bit. Um, a bit about you, uh, your background, uh, involvement in the arts and theatre and so on. Yeah, um, I mean, I was one of those annoying children that was just like singing Whitney Houston when I was three years old. So I've been engaged in the arts since I can remember, really. I've got a family that even though they're not artists themselves, very much have an appreciation for it. So my childhood was completely peppered with visits to, you know, the gallery, museums, poetry gigs, doing ballet. Um, I did a lot of African dance drumming. I was a carnival princess, choir. Yeah, so I, I did a lot. I did a lot. So I've always had the arts in my life, which is probably why I'm such a natural advocate for it. Where, where did you grow up? Are you... Mancunian? Uh, Wally Range. Oh, so you are Mancunian, right? Yeah, I'm cool. proper Manc. <laughs> and then sort of when did you know that this was something you wanted to do with your life rather than sort of singing as you were wandering around the house or dancing in the garden or whatever? Again, the idea of being a professional artist was introduced to me quite young. So I regularly credit this moment as like a point of validation for me it was when I was 10 and I got published in a local anthology so I was encouraged to think about um refugee experiences migrants and I at that point was introduced to Anne Frank so that's what that was my reference and yeah I entered this competition wrote a poem and then got published and I remember like seeing the book and it being so official and all of that and it just really gave me this energy. And I remember just kind of going into high school and thinking like, I'm a writer, like I'm a performer. And yeah, being around so many amazing mentors who were quite open about being artists. So like the choir teacher that used to come into my primary school, uh, Mr. Borrowdale, Jeff Borrowdale, he was very open about what he used to do. So it wasn't just coming in and just singing. It was like telling us, oh, I do this and I do that and this is how I make my money. And so I'd always have a sense of like, oh, you can actually work and be an artist. Like that is an option. So it always felt like something that I would be doing. Um, but I also definitely had this sense of it's not secure per se, or you might need a backup thing 
And also I just enjoyed other things anyway. Like I was super sporty, loved maths, loved other topics. So I always had this sense that I'd be doing a mixture of things. Yeah, it's interesting with the teachers who do something outside. I can remember those as well. And it's like, there's a good lesson there that you can continue with these things even when you have a job. But there's also a slightly negative lesson if you take it the wrong way that you're probably not going to make it full time at this way. So you've got to find that balance. So how then did you get into, I guess, arts administration, for want of a better word? And and how long have you been at Contact? Were you aware of Contact? Actually, presumably at Wally Range, you were aware of, if you grew up in Wally Range, you were well aware of Contact. I was. So I felt like I graduated towards contact because I started to do stuff at Z Arts, which was Zion when I was little. And yeah, there was always that thing of like, oh, I'm doing stuff at Zion. And then I'll, when I get old enough, then I'll, I'll waltz over to contact uh, where the slightly older young people. Um, but yeah, again, it was having really great mentors. So I was in a dance group called Abyssindi and then in Afro Cats, which Magdalene still runs now. And she used to pull me into extra things. So again, it wasn't about me just dancing. She'd um, let me shadow her doing workshops and things. And then there'd be all these evaluation forms or or feedback forms or things that needed typing up. And she was like, do you want to type those up? Do you want to help? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got this sense of like, there's other things that you have to do. There's, there's admin that's attached to the fun stuff, the fun stuff. And who does that and who gets paid for that and how does that work? And yeah, so that was all really interesting and trying to understand why do we even have to evaluate? It's, oh, because there's funders and oh, what's a funder? So I was having all of these conversations when I was about 14, 15. Um, yeah, with a number of people, like I said. So I was also in a choir with Yvonne Shelton and we used to do a lot of wedding singing. And I'd see her like, you know, navigating those conversations, sending emails, teach me how to make an invoice. <laughs> Essential <laughs> stuff. All artists should have that training in their teens, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm just really lucky that I've always been around people who have been quite open and transparent with me about the back uh, work that you have to do in order to then be someone that just turns up and sings at a wedding. But, so how did the job at Contact come about then? So um, I was an associated artist at Contact. So my first experience at Contact, I was 15. I was in the choir, singing in the foyer, very rosy cheeked and got bitten by the bug. I was like, right, this place is cool. I'm going to keep coming back. So I was going back and I was doing little bits here and there, performing poetry and and things like that. And then um, just started to get more and more opportunities, really. So was very much drawn in as an artist was allowed to set up a night approaching night called one might stand which still goes now but it's hosted by um you know the younger cohort of young, of young identity and that's what it should be because uh, it's, it's supposed to be led by the young people but yeah I was just given all these opportunities to kind of just find myself and be an artist and figure out what I want to do in the world because <laughs> I was still at uni doing philosophy and politics and then I was doing my maths PGCE so you know in reference to what we were saying before I had this sense of like oh I can't just be in the arts I need a backup what my what my other things but I still was always drawn to contact and then they pulled me in to cover a member of staff who was on uh, sick leave as a producer and that was the first time that I'd called myself a producer even though before that I was being a producer I was doing project management I was putting events on I was writing funding bids I'd done my first solo show all of that stuff I was doing but I just didn't know that it had a proper like 
title. I was like, this is just the admin <laughs> stuff that you've got to do if you want to be an artist. Um, and then the job went out fully because that member of staff actually put their notice in and then I went for it and I got it. So I worked for Contact from 2015 um, as their young people's producer. And that was just an amazing experience for me. And I did feel guilty for the first two years because I was like, I'm supposed to be a teacher somewhere. I'm supposed to be teaching maths. <laughs> it just didn't happen. Um, but I knew that I could still make impact and be engaged with young people and be doing all the things that I would do as a teacher, but just in a more expansive, imaginative, creative way, even though I'm very much an advocate for saying that mathematics is a creative topic. So I don't want that to be misinterpreted. But um yeah, it just it just made sense in terms of what I was doing. So I just ended up staying, but using it as an opportunity to kind of flesh out what I want to do, think about leadership opportunities, constantly pushing myself, throwing myself into different situations and going for courses. I did something called the Producers Academy in Belgium, which was really brilliant. Yeah. And then I left for two years, worked for the Arts Council, worked for the World Reimagined, and then saw that Matt was leaving, saw that this job was going and just thought, well, I may as well just go for it <laughs> and see. So I'm only 11 months in post as the new uh, chief exec and artistic director. And yeah. That's, I have that's to admit, funny. coming from a cultural museum background, having a chief exec of an arts organisation that also understands maths is a pretty rare thing, actually. So, and <laughs> is incredibly useful in understanding how funding bids go together and actually what you need to do. Trying to explain the difference between um, capital and revenue funding in, in an arts situation is, is, is was always an entertaining one. So we've talked, we've mentioned contact quite a bit, but for those who don't know and who probably only know it as a, a really funky building that they might pass um, every so often, what is contact? What makes it different to other theatre arts companies? Yeah, so we were a multi-arts venue. Um, historically, we were called Contact Theatre, but I was actually part of the consultation when we took the theatre bit away. I should stop mentioning it as a theatre company then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I do it as well because it is endearing and, you know, it is in the... It's still on some of the signs on Oxford Road, to be honest. So you can't get away from it. But I think we just really wanted to make sure that people understood that we're very multidisciplinary. We try to be as expansive and holistic as possible, which is really brilliant, but can be really hard sometimes to communicate out. But essentially, we're driven by young people being at the centre of the organisation and being really progressive and being invested in the future and just cultivating uh, the next generation really of creatives and that doesn't have to be restricted to the arts sector so we have such great partnerships outside of the arts a lot of stuff in regard to health and well-being and science and um really healthy relationship with the University of Manchester a lot of researchers work with us so we really try to encourage young people to think of themselves as full artists, as creative people that can have social impact and whatever form that takes, whether it means that you come to us and you are in a show or you write a poem or you actually set up your own project and go out into your community. We're here to support that. Um, 
so yeah that that's what contact is about and just referring back to the building it's brilliant that it's wacky and exciting and looks like a big castle but actually that is also an environmental statement because those turrets are a part of um our natural ventilation system which was quite pioneering at the time when it was developed and we're still super super proud of it and it's very efficient and that is very much in our ethos as well of just having that kind of consciousness climate consciousness climate confidence and making sure that we um have that as a pervasive thing um in everything that we that we do yeah i remember i think i mentioned to you that back in the very late 90s i think i did a piece for the big issue in the north on the opening of the building and i can remember that actually because all of the conversation i mean obviously there was a lot of conversation about the mission and, and what was going on but all the conversation was about the building and it's sort of in environmental i don't even know if we used the word sustainability at the time i'm not sure even if that word was in but it was probably the first conversation i'd had um about those sort of issues for an arts building certainly if, mm -hmm. if not buildings more generally um and it was you know it was quite an eye-opening one yes we are making this building that is a real statement visually yeah but it's very different but there are reasons for all of this difference as well which was yeah uh, yeah um I, what i find fascinating is you're talking about okay you can come in as a young person you can, you can work for a production you can write a poem or you can lead your own project how do you as a management team manage all of that stuff somebody walking off the street going i've got a really good idea here um how do you manage all of that stuff with putting on productions with um making enough money to keep running and all of those sort of things what do you sort of um what do you always keep in mind what's that mission that's at the center of it that goes okay this works for us this doesn't work for us this is how we keep it all together this is what we'll do next year rather than this year those sort of things i think it's about being relevant constant consultation we serve our young people by treating them as people <laughs> so it's really not about the emphasis on you know participation or uh, you know trying to figure out what are the young people doing or what, what's the next big thing it's really not about that and we have loads of different projects like recon for example which is our young producers and programmers where they come in and they sit in our programming meetings and they're very much seen as peers and they go out and see shows on our behalf and they'll tell us what they think is interesting and we might or might not go with it. So there's not that thing of like, oh, let's follow what the young people say. They're engaged in a critical conversation with us. And that's the way that we embed young people in our organisation. So half of our board are um, under 30. Junior, who's our chair when he was appointed, was under 30. Um, so yeah, that, that's the thing that's been really beautiful. We've really, we've launched a new website and we did a lot of consultation with young people thinking about the language that we're using. And the thing that kept coming up when we were, you know, getting to the crux of what is contact about? What, what are we trying to do? What, what should we articulate out? And they just kept saying, um, this is where we come to be. Like, this is just where we come to be ourselves. And we just thought that that was so simple and beautiful and joyous that it's a space where anyone feels that they are welcome. And I know that that can sound really quite tokenistic or buzzwordy, but that's what it was for me. That's why I was studying a PGC in mathematics, but I was in the foyer. I was always on the couch. I didn't go to the library. I was always on the couch with all my folders because I knew that that's where I wanted to be. <laughs> I wanted to be in a space where I could just breathe and I'd meet interesting people and I'd hear interesting things and feel a connection to my city and be challenged in just so many ways and stimulated. So 
just getting that multiplicity of, of an experience that you can have like a really political charged conversation but it's fun and someone's running around with glitter all over them do you know what I mean <laughs> it's just like we can have we can have fun but also um be very progressive and understand that there's power in our youthfulness um yeah I, yeah. I, I think I, I have a very clear memory and again I've told this story before when we were running Urbis in the late uh, noughts I guess uh and after the first couple of uh reclaims that we did um working with young people Moss Side Hume and then in North Manchester um, one of my eye openers was was working on a Saturday, and which is obviously the busiest day, um, and seeing one of our kids from the first reclaim bringing in a group of his friends who were all black teenagers from yeah. Moss Side, 14, 15. Yeah. And it was clear that he was showing them around because this was his now his place in the city centre. And yeah. when you when you talk to those guys, a lot of them, um, it was, well, we don't come into the city centre except for to shop for trainers sometimes, mm. you know, mm. and actually we don't have a place to go. And, and that feeling of, being welcome somewhere I think um in retrospect and we've, we've talked a lot about this as we we took Urbis to a place that was very much dom- around a sort of 14 to 22 23 year old sort of culture yeah not having young people on the board was a big mistake I think actually mm-hmm. um and I think that that's really fascinating and I'm always fascinated by organizations that do that um being vaguely involved with the rekindle school as well that, yeah where actually it being led by young people and that trust Yes, you can have a council of old elders, which obviously is what I'm on, being an old person. Um, but that sort of thing. I'm really interested in how that governance model works. Does it? What challenges are there in having young people lead who may not have any experience on boards before? So you've got statutory things that you've got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't want to rein people in too much when they're going off, as as anybody does. So what are the sort of challenges and, and how do you keep on that moving that forward positively when you've got that that mixed group of people? Yeah, I suppose it's the the basic things like you're saying. And it's interesting when you focus on the things that you want to put in place to support the young people, you actually realise that no, everyone needs this. Because um, one of the things that I was really keen to do going in, and this is because of my awareness as a maths teacher, I was like, I know that it's intimidating uh, to look at the finances. Because I first became a trustee when I was um, 25 for Future Ventures Foundation and even though I'm comfortable with maths and numbers, it still felt like a lot. And it's a very different thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it's that accountability as well, knowing that you're responsible for this. And what does that mean? And so immediately one of the things that I wanted to reach out to some of the younger trustees around was just how comfortable they felt. What's their financial literacy? And I was very open about that. I just said, you know, who, when you're looking at this, who knows what's going on? (laughs) Who feels comfortable asking questions? Um, Who knows what this means, that means? Um, And then Christy, who's so brilliant, he's one of our trustees and he used to work for Contact, just started doing some extra sessions just um, on the side so that we could all just sit and just chat and ask questions and just go, oh yeah, that means that. And I thought that, and I didn't ask it, but yeah. And it's just, it's just that in instigating that openness um, and pushing for, for them to be more vocal and critical in the space and not always pigeonholing pigeonholing them to moments where it's like, oh, we're talking about young people now. Oh, we're talking about participation stuff. It's like, no, 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 you're in the room for your whole expertise, like for everything. So it's encouraging that. And this wasn't necessarily a problem on our board, but when I've spoken to other people about their boards, it's really key that you let adults let's say the over 30s I don't like using that kind of phraseology but you know what I mean understand why the young people are there as well so there has to be that parity it can't be 
that the elders of the board feel like they're doing a young people the favour of having them on the board. It can't be that dynamic. Everyone needs to be in there as an individual discussing what their specialism is, what their focus is, where they feel like they can throw in and where the gaps are, where they're like, oh, actually, this isn't my domain this area i'm not going to be able to advocate for this or, or whatever else and just being really clear about what everyone's bringing to the table um so that's i wouldn't say that's been the challenge but that's been the thing that i was mindful of coming in and just having that empathy as someone who has been a young trustee that it can be intimidating but um you kind of need to put a bit more support in there but also push those young people to just stand up to the to the to the role because you you know you have to say you're accountable here and there's been times when you know people have approached me and said oh can we get some of you young trustees involved you know oh should we make sure that we pay them because they're young and I'm like well actually you can't do that if you want them to be representing us as a trustee because yeah. you can't get paid <laughs> it's it's a conflict of interest so I was just like you shouldn't I'm very much obviously here for people being paid, but they need to understand that at this point in time, with the way that things have set up with the charity commission, whatever else, that if you're agreeing to be a trustee, it's actually about that role being voluntary and what does that mean and how does that then interact with the, your other types of work and be if you're a freelancer or whatever else like they're the conversations that you need to have and understand what you sacrifice in taking on that role. Um, so yeah, they're they're the things that I've been focusing on. And, and, and dealing with. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So, uh, older people who are joining a board for the first time probably also struggle for various elements of it. But one of the things we learn as we get older is to be better at hiding our imposter syndrome, isn't it? So it's like you, you just get more used to it. Whereas younger people are more likely to go, what the hell is a balance sheet? And why does it, why does it, you know? <laughs> Which actually, most of us, the first time we look at it, we'll go, what the hell is a balance sheet? And what, what is this for? Why does yeah. this not make any sense whatsoever? Um, I always say to people, I'm like, why, they, why is it so ugly? Like, just let, can we make it look just a bit nicer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that brutal bottom line. And you're just looking at that first. Let's let's talk about the uh, 2023 50th anniversary. So what are the plans? Uh, where do you want to see the organisation go over the next year, the next few years? Yeah, so... It was a really exciting time for me to join because um, I joined in June and then the 13th of August was our official uh, 50 year marker last year. So what I felt inspired to do was 50 weeks of activity. So we've been doing little bits and bobs here and there and it's going to culminate in July at the end of the month, um, the 28th and the 29th with a series of activities and things called the big banquet. Essentially, I wanted to make use of the fact that we're in a big castle and what can we do to bring people together there's going to be a lot of food popping off obviously because it's banquet but there's going to be um zine making there's going to be a tattooing event there's going to be uh, an online poetry event with brooklyn slam um so i've really just reached out to people that we know um who are in our alumni who are exciting we've got a lot of patrons that are going to be part of our supper club on the first evening uh, I can't really speak to that just yet because we're going to announce the patrons in a separate separate press release. Um, but they're very exciting. And yeah, we're just going to be celebrating the building, celebrating what we've done for the past 50 years and then allowing it to give us space to then refocus. So for me, I am very open to thinking about 
reimagining what this building should be. So as I said at the top of this interview, we're a multi-arts venue. We don't need to restrict ourselves to theatre. And very often when you say theatre, it's so loaded. You know, people think about like a musical at the Palace Theatre and that's completely fine, but that's not what we do at Contact. So I'm just like, it doesn't serve us to to say that and if that exists you know we're on Oxford Road if there's already stuff happening there then what should we be doing and I'm interested in you know speaking to there's a dancer that I had working as an assistant director for me last year who he does loads of like gaming events and stuff on Twitch and he's an animator and I'm like well what's that what what we do what I want to know what that is so I'm having a meeting with him because I'm just like we should be working together I want you to try and test something with us and I don't know what it's called I'm not that versed in like coding and nfts and all that but that's where my head's at just trying to understand what the next generation is doing what a communal creative experience is for them how does it serve them as a piece of art as something that allows them to have social impact and how can we be a part of that how can we invest in that and foster that so that's where my head's at in the most broad way of articulating that yeah that's brilliant i mean having younger daughters and actually seeing you know it's it's always mocked particularly i think it's a thing about mocking girls for addiction to snap and addiction to insta or whatever but actually when you're starting to look at the way that they put together reels and put together films and put together even poses and the makeup for poses and um you know uh, particularly some of the musical acts who are coming out and what they're doing with their their hair and their makeup is a massive yeah. statement and a massive narrative in a single image because that's what yeah. they're using on snap and i i find that absolutely fascinating i don't understand more than about 10% of it but as an art form you can go well yeah it is i don't see why that's any why is andy warhol you know thought to be a, a genius for making a 4 hour documentary of people moving around and actually a microsecond of somebody in a particular pose is not which is fascinating but you've got to do that with the people themselves who have got that energy rather than somebody coming along and the 40 year old going i've heard about this thing and it sounds rather fun doesn't it <laughs> i'm always waiting for the what what the next thing will be when we're out there right finally as i know i know you've got to go um how do most of the people that listen to this city center companies city center employees how do people get involved if they want to find out more, if they want to get involved with what you're doing, if they want to support what you're doing? What can they yeah. do? So we've got a new website. So you just need to go to Contact MCR or follow us on Instagram. We've got a brilliant TikTok. So we've got a fab um, social media digital officer, Socora, who smashes it on TikTok. Um, we're on Snapchat. We're on Twitter, Facebook. So any kind of social media that you engage with, because, you know, there's so many in there. We're there. So just follow us and we, you know, put different types of content out, but you'll see what our program is. You'll see that we've got a call out at the moment, for example, with um, we've got a co-pro with Manchester International Festival. We're bringing the fabulous artist, Danez Smith, over to do a lock-in with us. So we're looking for three local non-binary Mancunian artists or Mancunian Manchester-based artists to essentially be locked in the building for 50 hours, <laughs> create summit, and then come out the other end um hopefully alive and well and thriving <laughs> I imagine the pressure in the last hour <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I just say head to our website and just engage with all of the exciting stuff that we've got popping off because we'll start to talk about the big banquet as I mentioned our new patrons um yeah so we just want people to come to the building really that's brilliant thank you very much Keisha thank you thank you to Keisha Next up is Rose Marley, Chief Exec of Co-ops UK. 
As you'll hear, Rose has been part of the fabric of Manchester cultural and business life for a couple of decades. We wanted to talk to her about what the co-op model meant now. Thank you for joining us, Rose. Um, shall we start with the obvious? A, a bit about you. How how did you get the role at Co-op UK? What were you doing before? Because I know you've been, you know, Mrs. Everything in Manchester for many, many years. <laughs> Hello, Vaughan. Thank you for inviting me today. Um, yeah, how did I end up at Co-op UK? Well, um, it, there was no great strategic plan. Um, as always, um, with um, everybody's careers, I think, really, it was a very wiggly uh, path that started out with um, growing up and having the absolute um, joy of growing up and being a teenager through uh, the Manchester period um, and kind of growing up wanting to mainly get backstage, mainly getting places for free because I had no money and that actually became my um, career and it's the best skills I ever learned and uh, I continue <laughs> to use them to this day really. So to cut a very long story short, I ended up working actually in the music business, having been the kid that was trying to get in. Um, we set up Silk Studios um, with the Quincy's Youth Business Trust Fund and some support actually from Bruntwood um, and uh, went on to kind of manage artists for the likes of EMI and AOL Time Warner, doing all sorts of sponsorship gigs, etc. Lots of consultancy in there. I was COO of In The City, which was the International uh, Music Conference run by Tony Wilson and his partner, Yvette lives there. And um, I kind of traveled the world and got to do a lot of amazing things. And then I got pregnant and had that really cliched moment of going, what am I, what kind of world am I bringing this child into? It's all terrible. And and uh, um, don't make light of that. When you work in things like entertainment and music, you do get to see a vast amount of wealth and a vast amount of inequality. And coming from the north side of town, um, I would I'd be in like these kind of incredibly, you know, luxurious environments where a lot of money was being spent. And then I'd be coming back to Moston um, and, you know, seeing the very different opportunities that uh, my friends and peers are given. And I got quite angry about it, really. So that was really where my journey started as a social entrepreneur. Went on to set up uh, an organisation called Motive, working with brands and entertainment to improve um, attendance and aspirations in, in school children. That morphed into what is now called Sharp Futures, um, a community interest company that, that delivers young and diverse talent into um, creative sector like BBC ITV Channel 4. Um, and in amongst that, I also set up the Sharp Project as the CEO and Space Studios. And I consulted for Andy Burnham on something called Our Pass, a travel pass. So whilst I was doing all that, the pandemic hit. Um, and I've got to say, if I'm entirely honest, I wasn't looking to change uh, anything at all, but I did get a phone call um, asking me to look at this role at Cooperatives UK and a whole bunch of things aligned all at once and, and resulted in me ending up being the CEO. Is that a potted okay. enough history for you? <laughs> yeah, two and a half minutes of a flash through oh, a few years. Um, so it's those skills of getting into gigs, um, that blagging skill that, that makes you legendarily one of those people that you can't say no to as there are various conversations. I was having that conversation with Michael Addex a bit ago. You just can't say no to Rose, can you? So it's obviously <laughs> that's that that skill that you got. Tell us about, obviously everybody knows the co-op, um, either from the retail side or from the banking side or from the funeral services side, which seems to be taking over death across the country at the moment. But Co-ops UK is different. What's Co-ops UK? How long has it been around? Tell us a bit about it. 
Yeah, cool. over 170 years actually, Barn. I do feel a weight of uh, responsibility in this role. Um, yeah, the, the challenging thing is a cooperative is a form of business in the same way um, that, you know, you, well, actually it's a form of business that can be a limited company, it can be a partnership, it's all different forms, but it's just a form and way of doing business, which means it is collectively owned. Um, so in a housing cooperative, that's often by the tenants in um, supermarket, it's the, the, the customers, the, the um, owners, and um, it's democratically controlled. So again, not that many people always understand this, but when you get your little blue in Manchester co-op uh, card, that means you're an owner member of that shop and you get to have a right. And if you are a member, it's the Saturday's AGM um, where you can vote on um, the way that the cooperative is run. So, but Cooperatives UK um, encompasses all of those co-ops. So we're like a member-based organisation. So yes, my biggest member is at the co-op group, the supermarket and funeral homes. Um, I also have an associate member, which is the bank. Um, but like I said, there's, you know, 7,000 other co-ops uh, throughout the country that do some, you know, everything from, there's a lot of co-ops that are, are not that well known, like FC United is a cooperative, for example, owned its fan-led cooperative, or um, you know, Lancashire County Cricket Club. So there's lots of co-ops that we don't really realise are co-ops, um, but then also there's lots of co-ops that it's a growing kind of desire and demand from people to want an alternative way and to have a stake and to have a say and to bring that fairness and equality to, to everything, really, whether it's where, where you live, where you work, what you consume. So let's say Cooperatives UK is like the member voice for those organisations. We do everything from provide advice services. We put on events. We've got Cooperative Congress this year in Manchester. It moves around the country. Um, but it's, it's our job to um, sort of grow and uh, promote and support the whole cooperative movement. Now, when I say the whole cooperative movement, my job is very specifically UK-based, but Again, for those of you that know your history, that, that whole movement did start in Greater Manchester over 176 years ago in Rochdale. Um, and a group of um, people came together and collectively wanted to solve issues around, you know, what we would now call food justice, actually. And that's how called supermarkets began. But that's triggered a um, that's triggered a worldwide movement. There's now 3 million cooperatives worldwide. 12% of the population is employed. The world population is employed by co-ops. And just the um, top 100 co-ops worldwide alone bringing 1.3 trillion to the uh, global economy. In the UK, that's 40 billion. This is not, you know, this isn't fluffy chat, um, kind of um, nice to have kind of organisations. 40 billion to the UK economy. And when you consider where I started the music business, that brings about five billion to the UK economy. You get to understand that co-ops are actually huge business here in the UK. And have you seen, I mean, obviously you talk about the co-op, you're talking about the ownership structure more than more than anything else. Um presumably that that is demonstrating a desire if it was originally owned by a few people and then becomes a co-op or it's de developed as a co-op all the way along. Um, a desire to share proceeds, a desire to do more than just generate profit does that necessarily lead to a desire to be better with the wider community whether they're owners or not to be more involved with the wider community to to give back in lots of different ways we've been talking a lot about sort of ESG stuff is there a sort of natural link between co-ops and that co-op structure and what we now call ESG because that you know that's something that dates back 170 years but 
is sort of core to the co-op movement? Yeah, completely. There's seven principles of cooperation and they start with that membership piece that you're talking about with open and inclusive um, membership. It's very, very clearly based on trading um, and principle number uh, seven does indeed include that uh, care and concern for the community. But you also have a bunch of values around things like self-responsibility and honesty as well. So, you know, um, organizations that like deliver um, against values and principles of cooperation, you can see why that becomes being concerned about climate or, you know, uh, health inequalities, et cetera. But as well as that kind of values and, and, and principles piece, I think something that's really important about the ownership piece um, is it, it, it's, it's complicated. It's actually really simple, but it's complicated to get across in a short message. And it's about the, the model being um, non-extractive wealth. So co-ops, and you see this co-ops and mutuals, you know, so you, so you see, you know, mutual organizations, really similar building societies nationwide are mutual that we, that we work closely with, for example, the credit unions and mutuals. The bottom line with co-ops and mutuals is that the, because they're member-owned in the UK, money stays predominantly in the UK. I mean, it certainly stayed within the local community. So you get like, uh, let's say when I say it predominantly stayed in the UK, what doesn't happen is it doesn't get offshored. It doesn't go out to shareholders. You know, when it leaves the UK, that'll often be because it's buying fair trade products for, you know, supply into something like co-op stores. But this kind of idea around, you know, it's talked about in language like community wealth building, for example. But it's the, it's the idea that you know, when you um, join a co-op or shop at a co-op or, you know, whatever you do, that, that that actual cooperative kind of pound, you know, tends to stay very directly related to where it was generated. So I think as well as the CSG and, let's say, the values and the principles, because co-ops often will uh, work towards the UN sustainable goals on, 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 you know, on things like ESG, but there's something really fundamental as well about that sort of, local impact on the economic as well as the social well-being of the community it's one of the i suppose um negatives that people might think about is if, if you're owned by 50 100 thousands of people um it is that question of how you make quick decisions particularly um so i guess thinking about the governance structure with with different cops thinking about the last few years where we've had covid and businesses of of you know weathered difficult times having to make very quick decisions sometimes and and uh, quick changes of of how they're run and what they're doing i mean how do how have co-ops coped with the covid experience and and how do they cope more generally with those sort of crises that you know i'm not going to say that the uh, the great leader chief exec is necessarily the answer to everything but at least you know you have one person who's going to go right we're going to do this now or whatever how do, how do co-ops deal with those crises and and being resilient well, it's one of the reasons I took this role, Vaughan, and I'm very excited. Uh, we are on the cusp of Industry 4.0. You know, the co-op group started in the Industrial Revolution. We're back full circle. We're now looking at taking that kind of mass manufacturing industry back to actually cottage industry with people working at home on their computers, just a person, um, you know, making their own uh, money and funds. And actually, this is going to be a pivotal, an absolute pivotal decade for humankind. We're seeing all the things like the rates in, you know, the speed uh, of which um, artificial intelligence, for example, is, is developing and growing. 
and you know I truly and strongly believe that um, that collective ownership and that democracy is critical to actually our tech so if you look at it um, blockchain is a co-op in fact the vice president of blockchain says the closest business model you'll find to blockchain is a co-op you know the first block you make is its rules its governance um, blockchain makes decisions with lots of members very very quickly um, so that's the vision for me that's ultimately where you know we can be you know part of my role is to, to make cooperation a lot more modern and relevant in the context of, of the world that we live in today because those rocks of the values and principles have stood firm and proved that you can build business on them and be ethical and be fair and all those things that that people are, are looking for um, but there's a great um, there was a great uh, quote from Bertrand Russell in in the 1950s, and, he, and he, the quote is the only thing that will redeem mankind is cooperation. And I've um, edited his quote. My version of it is the only thing that will redeem mankind is cooperative technology. Because actually, if you programmed all those values and principles into our tech, we would have a fairer society. It's as simple as that. So the potential of um, that kind of decision-making process to me is huge and can be back, can be bigger numbers and at speed. Um, you absolutely, you know, come uh, with the right question because you know over the over the years, um, the you know that kind of traditional kind of showing your cards and AGM and voting and decision-making you know, is one model of it where, and it depends because every single co-op is different. They're all really, really different. And it depends what you've set out in your member and what your members want. And they can change those rules, you know, as, as they go along, if that suits. But often, you know, they'll have like these structures where, like I say, it's very clearly, um, the members get to vote on, on quite granular detail. Whereas in other co-ops, they'll kind of delegate that um schedule uh, you know schedule of delegation to the operational team which is what I have in, in, in my co-op I get a really clear remit from my membership I've got a board that I'm responsible to and the board are responsible to the membership but I don't have to ask them on some really kind of day-to-day -day operational questions I have to say Vaughn it was a bit of a learning curve because throughout the organization that you know um, kind of uh, collective thinking, working together, it is within the DNA of all co-ops, no matter how you structure it. And I think you alluded to it before, Bob, but I am very used to get, previously getting paid to get things done and uh, getting people to, to, to do whatever that is. So it's been a massive learning curve for me to just slow down in some of those decision makers. But, you know, that diversity of thought and opinion and Collective ownership of the challenge and the solution is actually quite a refreshing uh, place to be. Yeah, it's interesting when you say that. Obviously, as Citigo being a membership organisation and thinking about places like the Chamber, don't call ourselves cooperatives, don't have cooperative structures, but actually we are sort of owned by our members. And if we aren't doing what our members want us to do, then they're not going to rejoin. So, you know, that is your fundamental raison d'etre, isn't it? So, yeah, we I, I can absolutely understand that, particularly when you're running a membership organisation. Actually it sort of falls naturally into that structure, definitely. Um, I think one of the interesting things, obviously, is I mean, you were talking there about blockchain and, and where we're going in terms of technology and so on, um, balancing that history, the 176 years. Um, I think one of the fascinating things, of course, is you are in one of the more historic buildings in the city as well. So finding that that balance with where things are going to be in the 21st and into the, hopefully into the 22nd century as well um, with, with that building. Um, Tell us about the building. Tell us about some of the challenges as well, but sort of being in the heart of 
Is it is it the Noma Quarter still where you are? I'm, I'm yeah, sure. well, the, the, the co-op yeah. quarter. The Let's call it the co-op quarter. quarter. Yeah, but yes. Shude, Shude Hill is what I would have uh, traditionally yeah, called absolutely. it. And um, yeah, and it, 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 you have hit on something there that makes me smile because it is that collective ownership and decision making, which has left me with a building which is wonderful, but it's confused in terms of who actually owns it. It's owned by the movement. Okay, that's interesting when you're filling in the insurance forms. Um, so who's going to but... fix the plumbing if it's <laughs> yeah, owned by the movement? Yeah. yeah, but it is the only building left um, in the UK that's owned wholly by um, the cooperative um, movement. And it is, it's called Hollyoak House after George Hollyoak, who was one of the original pioneers um, uh, from uh, Rochdale. And actually, it was paid for, the reason it's owned by the movement, it was paid for and created by what we would now call crowdfunding. Um, but it was, uh, you know, let's say the 170, um, well, this building, 100 and just over 100 years um, uh, ago, this was created. And this building, let's say it's a grey, um, you know, grey two um, building, really interesting space. I love this area. You know, I've got Sadler's Yard behind us. You know, it's a really vibrant um, area. Obviously, we've got Angel Square Co-op Group just around the corner. And as I'm sure your members are very alert to you know this being the the kind of now the the, the gateway into Manchester City Centre from what will become a really exciting uh, development out through um, Angel Meadows and, and Collyhurst in terms of, of the housing and what's happening with the canals there um, but yeah this building like I say it's multi-tenanted so I've got predominantly I've got social enterprise co-op small business um, in here um, and what I do want to do with the, the, the building going forward is um, I want to kind of do a bit of a refurb and, and bring it as a beacon of cooperation because, you know, that kind of more, you know, obviously more the, the, the hot decking and people's working together and enabling the building to be able to do that. But um, when you come to Manchester City Centre at the moment, you know, and again, your members really alert to this subject matter about what a city centre is for, the more thing, times that shops are going online and how do you create that footfall and retain that footfall so in actual fact any of your members that would like to talk to me about how i want to create footfall to manchester through Hollyoak house we get I, I literally constantly get stopped by people from japan or philippines like who are taking pictures at the front of the building and they see my picture on something and let's say in the uk co-ops are like you know meh. Uh, worldwide we're revered you know um, i find it quite a, an interesting dynamic but actually, I want to capture some of that. You know, there's an actual um, Toad Lane, which is the Rochdale um, Museum. There's a replica of that in Japan, like a whole replica of it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I want to do a lot more. Uh, I want to do like um, a lot more tours and visitor experiences here at, at Hollyoke House and really shine a light so that you do, you know, always we will direct people to, to Rochdale and to, to the museum. Like I say, if you were just coming here for a weekend, right now the only visibility you've got is the co-op movement. You, you have to look, look hard for, you know, people's history museum, do some stuff. Um, like I said, if you, it's not even called the co-op quarter anymore. It's, you know, it's called Noma now. And there's like nine incredible buildings there with so much history. Um, so, yeah, I'm really keen to kind of, reclaim our heritage yes to forge our you know our future and say that hope for the next generations i do believe that the cooperative movement offers hope you know when you look at all the things that um you know young people are preoccupied by that they're concerned about like you know uh, careers and opportunities our housing our climate our mental health and well-being there are co-op solutions for them all that are really effective um, so I want to use this place to, to tell 
to, to demonstrate that heritage, you know, um, but actually to help people forge their future and to get that that balance in there. So yeah, I'd be delighted to hear from any members that want to join in, because obviously it'll be a collaborative and cooperative process. Sure, we can help with that and find some people, definitely. Um, always wanting people to wander around and, and get to know the uh, history of the city centre better, because it's not something we're very good at telling at all, with a few exceptions. Um, I know we haven't got long, so very quickly, um, what are the big things on your agenda at the moment? What are your plans for 2023, 2024? So, the, uh, right now, uh, like I've got co Congress coming up in uh, Manchester this year, and that's like a big highlight and bringing a lot of subject matters to, to the attention of, of the masses, not least through co-op uh, fortnight, which follows for the next couple of weeks where we're raising the awareness. But some of the really exciting co-ops that I'm, I'm, I'm working on, one of them beyond the music co-op, um, which is uh, an international music um, festival and change making event. And, you know, in effect, you know, um, we've, we've, we've done them here before in Manchester International uh, Music Conferences and Events. And, you know, that kind of conference model, you know, worldwide is, is very well known. But what we're trying to do is turn that in the head and say, when you join the conference, when you come to be on the music, you've got an opportunity to, again, own it, have a stake and a say in what it looks like going forward. But not only that, when we're doing the, um, you know, the Congress panels at Beyond the Music. So, for example, we've got member groups around, say, trade and industry, um, and they might be talking about creating a charter for mental health and well-being in, in content creation. Um, that won't just be, you know what it's like, you go to, um, you, you go to a, an event and you go to a panel and you're euphoric because everybody's talking about the same thing and got really strong ideas. And then, you kind of go back to your, you know, your day job, your desk, and, and that's the end of that. Well, not with Beyond the Music, because it's a co-op structure. Those discussions will form member groups who will work on that problem and come up with a solution and bring it back annually. So there's progress, it's moving forward. I'm dead excited about the option of that as, let's say, using the co-op model to change a really, you know, well-tried and tested method um, that we that we do believe needs a bit of a refresh for uh, the centre that, that we're in and then as well um, you know I'm excited by it because it means that we'll be filling for four days in October we will be filling Manchester with uh, you know 200 bands and artists we're doing all sorts of really different spaces and using different spaces for uh, music and film and visuals and we'll be putting the spotlight back um, on Manchester um, in respect of, um, we went to South by Southwest, which is a huge music and tech conference in, in, in Texas. Um, and we went and we, we launched Beyond the Music Co-op there with New Order. We're there to ambassador and support. We took a whole bunch of new bands. But the reason South by Southwest was so supported, uh, supportive of, of, you know, working with, with Manchester and, and, and Austin together, was because actually South by Southwest got a lot of their ideas and developed them in Manchester. Uh, so it's that kind of, so I'm dead, dead excited about that and, and all its um, potential. And then, you know, it's there's a lot kind of going on, as we know, in the, in the world at the moment. But um, I do get excited about um, democracy. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the next uh, year or so brings for society, because I do want to see if people do demand the changes and do demand those fair and equitable futures and that I feel like we all deserve so I just feel a lot of um I'm the opposite of, of, of a lot of people at the moment I feel like there's a lot of hope around at the moment 
Excellent. And obviously for listeners who want to know more about Beyond the Music, the first one of this series was, I think, on the launch day. Uh, we recorded it or, or we recorded, for, we launched it for the launch day in Austin. But um, so that's a couple of episodes ago. Um, finally, then, Rose, uh, if people want to know more about co-ops and more about Co-op UK, where, where do they go? Where can they find out more? Uh, yeah, uk.coop. And if you're in Manchester, if you ever want to get hold of me, I'm so easy to get hold of. <laughs> Not least through Vaughan. Uh, but yeah, uk.coop for all that understanding about what cooperatives are. And yeah, let's let's reclaim it, Manchester. Let's um, take over the world again. Thanks to Rose. And finally, in our book club, it's all too easy to fall into a myth of Manchester either as Cottonopolis or as the home of the Hacienda and never look outside of those stories. Radio Manchester presenter, writer and poet David Scott wanted to challenge all that and the result is Mancunians, an oral history of the last 20 or so years that tries to tell the stories maybe the official narratives of the city ignore. Right David, thank you for joining us. Um, love the book. Uh, a wonderful tapestry of different interviews. So um, I do think we could probably sit and talk about it for about five hours. Um, <laughs> however, we haven't got that long. Um, just take us through uh, where did the idea for, for the book come from? Um, sort of how did you set about it? Because there's what two hundred odd interviews in it. Um, how did you sort of keep it all under control while that was that was going along? <laughs> how long did it take you? Tell us about the genesis of Mancunians. Okay, so the the book started. Uh, I think it was just in the middle of the pandemic. Um, Manchester University Press heard a podcast interview I'd done on Excess Manchester's, uh, they do a podcast series with Clint Boone and I was talking there about my sort of formative years in Manchester and it was away from the whole Oasis and Hacienda stuff so it was, from a music point of view I was heavily into the likes of drum and bass but more in the sort of indie scene it was like Elbow Doves uh, I Am Clute but I was also into sort of um, I hate the phrase black music but a lot of the black artists that were that were, that were, that were coming out of the city at the time um, and then the more I discussed on that and then Manchester University Press got in touch and said would I like to write a book based around that time initially it was just going to be around the music uh, coming out of the city after Post Oasis but the more I sort of sat down and basically uncovered what else was going on across the themes that are in the book. I thought, well, if you hold up a minute, we've got a massive golden period that's never actually been discussed about, about the city because obviously the, you've got the sort of totemic figures of Lehman Noel Gallagher, all the Hacienda and Tony Wilson, which I think they're all vital to, to Manchester's culture and vibrancy and where we are today. But I just get a little bit, I think a lot of Mancunians, I think this has been the success of the book as well. So I think a lot of Mancunians are sick, sick of hearing the same stories about the same place. So it wasn't so much me getting on my soapbox to try and counter that because I've got a love, lot of love for the the. I didn't. I never went to the Hacienda, but the bands that came up at that time, and I got a lot of respect for the, for the artists and stuff. But I just, it was nothing to quote Morrissey. It said nothing to me about my life. Do you know, <laughs> you know. So I wanted to try and write a story. So from '96 when the IRA bomb went off to roughly 2002, 2003 when the Commonwealth Games. That sort of five year period, six year period. It was just huge. And we look at not even the music, got like the media side of it. We were like BAFTA winning dramas, you know, like East is East, Cold Feet, Royal Family. And I think we were just really starting to portray a side of ourselves away from the stereotypes. We don't celebrate that, which I always find quite ironic for a city that is so proud of its diversity, but we always spin the same stories. And it's it's difficult because you're never really sure about who's in control of that narrative. 
So you can't point a finger at one person about it because I understand, like, say, a, a Peter Hook wants to keep maintaining Hacienda classical. I understand that. I know I, I get why, why, why it does. And it's not financial pursuit or for an artistic pursuit, but, you know, the, I want to talk about other stuff. There's, there's a lot more to be celebrated. So that was the sort of the genesis of the idea. And then how did you go about interviewing all those people? Because, I mean, there's some really big names. Obviously, Dave Haslam, who's friend of the podcast, Guy Garvey, a uh, number of other people on there who are really well known. And then sort of uh, some ne'er-do-wells, some um, semi-drug dealers or whatever in the chapter on drugs, which is really, really interesting. Um, how did you go on getting Because you also talk in the afterword about lots of people you interviewed and you just had to leave them out because they didn't fit in with the narratives that you did. And it must have taken a couple of years to do. Yeah, so I, I think all in it was about two and a half years to actually to, to write through to, to publication. But finding the guests, it was a case of, I spoke to one person and then they said, oh, well, so-and-so's got a good story there. So all of a sudden, and that's where the title came from because everyone was just saying, oh, well, you need to speak to so-and-so. They've got a great story. That is Network of Mancunians sort of sort of came about. So I speak to, I don't know, uh, I spoke to Stan Chow. Uh, and then I spoke to Andy Hargreaves, who's a drummer at Viam Clute. And I got a phone call two days later after speaking to Andy Hargreaves and said, Guy wants to talk to you. And I'm doing the school run while this is going on. And I'm thinking, which guy? Well, our guy? And then he goes, Guy Garvey, you bam pot. And then only one guy in Manchester. Though. Yeah. Well, a guy called Gerald as well, I suppose. <laughs> and um, yeah, so then the next the next morning I'm on the phone to, to Guy Garvey and he's telling me all about his time. And then other people put me on to Badly Drawn Boy. And then when I spoke to Damon, I also got managed to speak to Andy Votel. And I think because nobody had ever actually told their story before. Everyone was very forthcoming with, with what I was trying to do with the book. Uh, and that's the same with the, the the sort of drug dealing and the, the crime chapters. It's because, again, it's the stereotypes of what is a drug dealer? How does one become a drug dealer? And uh, or, or why does someone fall into becoming a drug addict? They look at the sort of crime or the, the 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 addiction, but they don't look at the steps towards it and stuff. And that was very important. I was trying to uncover the, the sort of the processes to why it's a societal problem rather than just an individual problem. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think we're not as bad as Liverpool, obviously, which it's, you know, entire popular culture history stopped in 1964, basically. Um, and, you know, I know, knowing, being quite a bit older than you, knowing people who went to Eric's and obviously the teardrops and Echo and the Bowman, they feel that that is entirely ignored, even though it was this huge cultural frenzy at, that, at the time. And there is something in Manchester that... Um, you know, you talk to young students that come in, most of them, particularly if they're overseas, they haven't heard of Tony Wilson and they haven't really heard of the Hacienda until they get here and then it's sort of forced on them. Um, I think I've, I think in one of the other interviews, actually, that's going on this podcast, talk about that feeling very much that pop culture is experienced by uh, girls, particularly young people, people of colour, gay people. But it tends to be white, straight, middle-aged men that actually then write the history. And it's done in a bit much more intellectual way than, a, than an experiencing way. Um, so pulling some of those stories back in. And I guess in Mancunians, the way that you've done it is actually to let people tell their own stories. It's, was that always what you intended to do? Or was that something that, you know, you tried rewriting a few things and then thought, no, they just basically tell it better themselves? Um, not really. I, th I think when I first sat down, the idea was just to try and write a bit of a, a biography for me. But very quickly, I was like, well, I'm just doing the same thing that everybody else has done, offering like one perspective. So for, I've, I've been a massive fan of uh, modernism for like, the likes of uh, James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and I was trying to play around with form. So I thought, I wonder if it's possible to try and 
make a documentary but in book form so i was like well so, so basically just that was the very early on that that, that that came about that idea and i was unsure whether it worked but the more people read, read it and were saying like well the the voices are so unique it sort of jumps off the page to, to them and it's so individual and i think if i'd have just written it from my perspective i just put in certain quotes in I don't think it would have been as strong and the whole point is to let people tell their stories and it's not it's not my story it's more of a it's a collective memoir i think is, is probably the best way of looking at it which is a really nice phrase i mean as you as you said earlier it, there's obviously a very uh central core to it which is sort of that 99 1996 to 2002 2003 type story so that that sort of turn of the millennium um and many of the official stories are going to still talk about you know post hacienda or whatever and then the start of the the rebuilding of the city center um but you take it beyond that obviously having been brought up a mancunian having lived in manchester so in that period when you were growing up in the early 90s late 80s early 90s what was your experience particularly the city center at, at that time because you talk quite you know openly around what we think the city center was that wasn't what it felt like as a kid yeah i mean it, it was strange wasn't it I, it's always felt like it was a, a day trip we didn't, never, never referred to it as a city center it was always going into town and i was remember getting the the 192 in with with my nana every saturday and i was speaking to someone about this there last night actually it, i don't know if it's like an age thing but whenever you look back it always felt like it was sunny <laughs> and which is obviously not correct for for manchester for its famed weather but yeah, I just love like, um, it felt a little like going into adventure when I, when, I, when I was young. So when I was like 10, 11 and stuff, and I come in with my parents and stuff, it like, uh, it was a day out, it was akin to going to the um, to the seaside, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty, um, but you haven't, I think I've mentioned a couple of times in the book, there's no comparison, so it's just everything. Yeah, so everything sort of felt sunny and I go in with my, my parents and a lot of the times with my my mum's mum, um, She's an Irish woman and we go in and she felt like it felt like she knew everybody in town. And it felt like there's a massive sense of community in a way that I don't think there is now. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not, that might be me not, not, not hitting it right. But it just felt like it had more of an identity. If, if that's what it felt like George during the, during the time when I was growing up, uh, the, the shops were comical, but you had places like you had like little, little hives. You'd have Piccadilly gardens, which were, you'd have people hanging around in there, or you had the underground market. And then you had Affleck's palaces. So there's all these little tribes of different cool people, whether it's the punks or the goths or emos, yeah, all sort of congregating around town. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was good. Like I always felt like it was a bit of an adventure, like going to to the seaside whenever whenever going to ta to town on the weekend. <laughs> um, obviously it wasn't, but you know. But I think maybe it's just naive when when you're young. But I didn't have I didn't have any sort of negative connotations about it. And then when I started getting to the the teenage years, and then I started exploring the likes of Affleck's Palace more. Um, started buying magic mushrooms from Doctor Herman's on uh, Oldham Street, and then it sort of felt like I don't know. It starts to start. I, I admire, I think I mentioned it in the book, I admired everybody who was in Affleck's Palace so much, but I didn't have the balls to to do what they were doing because I knew I'd get the piss ripped. Sorry, you're allowed to swear on this, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, so I got the piss ripped out of me back in school, but everyone was like just wearing what they wanted to wear, piercings, dreads, and different clothes and stuff. And I thought, right, that's mint. But it just felt like such a different place to to live in in South Manchester in Levensium at the time where you, where you had to fall into line really with your Ben Sherman shirts and jeans and just like, no, listen, which, which I, I enjoyed doing, but it just felt like that, that was the uniform that you had to wear because you grew up in a certain place. Whereas Affleck's palace always felt a little bit like the outlier. And now if you look around Manchester, the Northern quarter, now it's like the Northern quarter sort of assimilated to the ethos of the Affleck's palace, which is a beautiful yeah, thing really. Out, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Which, 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 which is a great thing. Yeah, and, and sort of growing up in in Levy and in that area, how much were you aware of 
I don't know, Manchester history or being, because it, it comes about your final chapter is definitely about, is, is, you know, what is a Mancunian and how to almost how to be a Mancunian sort of thing. And, and looking at, you know, some of the swagger and whether that is really what being a Mancunian is about. And when you were growing up, were you aware of the importance of Manchester in, I don't know, world history? Were you aware of the cultural stuff at all? Not in the slightest. It was never it was never mentioned in high school. Like it wasn't until I was like twenty five that I heard of Peter Lou. It's like well, well, only when like I went around to my mate's brother's house, Chris, and we go through his music collection. I didn't know Happy Mondays in New Order were, were these so called Manchester bands. I didn't realize that. that so you, actually... you were aware of the bands, but you weren't. You didn't. Know yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I didn't think they lived in Manchester, and I was also unsure as to the significance of that. Really, I was like, because like, what, what does that actually mean? Because they don't sound the same than bands. I don't think many bands across Manchester sound the same. You had like copycats. You want to sound like Oasis afterwards or whoever else. But I was just never. I don't know. It, it wasn't a thing. I didn't. I don't think I looked at Manchester as somewhere I wanted to live. To be honest, when I was like when when I was growing up, I always I was fortunate to go on like holidays to to the states or visit people in London. And it always felt like the cool thing was happening outside of the city. But I was very, I was completely unaware that there was stuff like Factory Records or even that we had an art scene or anything. Lowry is another name that was never mentioned in, in, in high school. And stuff, which is embarrassing, really. I mean, obviously, it's not my fault. We didn't have the internet and we didn't have really good schools. Yeah, you teachers. can't be blamed as that for a 13-year-old, is it? Like... Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, com completely oblivious to, to, to everything. I think it's only when I started listening to the music more that, and, and then started trying to join the dots. So when I started getting into the Smiths and it was about 2021, 20, and obviously the likes of Morris is talking about like, um, what are called uh, the Moors murders or making reference to certain things. And then you start looking back into your history and stuff. And it's, you know, it's, it's such a fun, it's just such a fascinating history. And that's, I was really interested when we said before the interview, what, what your plans are to move on to next. Cause I, 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 de I definitely devour that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's one of the things that we found again and again, the po this podcast has been running like seven, eight years now. And all the ones that get all the big, biggest focus are, you know, we did a history on King street with Jonathan Schofield. We've done a lot with Hayley Flynn as a, as a tour guide in uh, Northern Quarter. It's all the history stuff. I just don't think we're very, very good at it. And whether it's that more ancient stuff, all that more recent stuff, we, I think everybody, you focus on particular areas, don't you? And it's like that outside of that. That's why I think the the stuff that you talked about, given that it sort of crosses over with the Hacienda still being open, but actually talking about, you know, going clubbing in 97, 98, you, it wouldn't even occur to you that, you know, that, that, that sort of world was your world really because there were more exciting things going on at that time weren't there so for you guys um I mean particularly you talk a lot you have a whole chapter on the new acoustic movement and the the importance of sort of bar jobs in night and day which uh certainly the, my de my deputy was one of those who was about had a bar job in night and day at the time um so talk a little bit more about that and have you got any thoughts about why I mean Elbow were huge you know eight ten years ago yeah um they're still huge they could still fill out stadium but you don't get that sense that they're talked about in the same way that oasis are talked about had that same ongoing impact so um i mean sort of take us about what through what you think about the new acoustic movement, why it was important to you um but also sort of why it it's a very clear two three year period isn't it yeah i mean it, it was very important to me because I love I loved Oasis, but Oasis was all about sort of escape. And like I said before, about about getting out of Manchester and, you know, removing yourself from the humdrum of dead end jobs and stuff. And as I like, you know, a lot of it was fantasy, really, that like uh, if you listen to Definitely Maybe and and uh, what's the story. But then when I heard the likes of um, Bad Drone Boy, Elbows Asleep in the Back album, I include Natural History. It was very much dealing with the here and now and sort of sell. I don't know if it's celebrating like where you're from or who you are, but it's just it, it was just an honesty that I'd not heard from any of my 
And I guess peers, really, because because Oasis sort of blew up before I became 16, 17. But I always looked at uh, the, the likes of Elbow and, and Cole as sort of being my gen- my generation's musicians. Um, but yeah, it was just it was just so honest and raw, really, uh, and just sort of painting. I don't know because I found like, I found growing up really difficult. Uh, I think everybody does, you know. But I, I, I think I mentioned it a few times in the book, and it was just nice to sort of see somebody else who's going through shit. And, and it, it comes from the same place as you. And talking and like, about it. Yeah. yeah, and talking about it because it doesn't feel like such an isolated, it doesn't it, like depression or whatever is massively sort of isolating as it is. But if you put on a record and I don't know, Elbow's talking about like um, come downs or like uh, regrets and stuff, and you're like, oh shit, I'm not alone in this. Other people have gone through it. But if you haven't got that, if you've just got the cock and balls of Liam Gallagher saying, yeah, we're going to take on the world, which is great. You can do that on a Friday night. You can't do that for the rest of the, you can't do that. You can't do that every night of the week though, can you? So, um, so, so, so that's why they, they meant a lot to me. And I think that Elbow now, more than a household name, I'd say, especially Guy Garvey, has obviously got his, his, his sixth music show. I just don't think that Elbow had the brand of Oasis. And I, th- I think in some ways, I think Oasis' brand or laddish behavior has sort of been detrimental to them in some retrospectives because that becomes more of the sort of talking point about the behavior than it is the actual music that they were playing because you, you, you can't really discount how, how amazing them debut albums were. But because the sort of, they went hand in hand, it wasn't like the music let them do the talking or the, the lads did the talking. It was just like, it was a quick one too with both fans. When it, you know what I mean? That's what it was like. Whereas Elbow and a lot of the people from um, the new acoustic movement, which they absolutely hate, by the way, they hate that. They, I can they imagine, hate that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they, they hate that phrase. Uh, they're just really sort of self-deprecating and, and humbling. I found I was absolutely gobsmacked when I was uh, first time I met Badly Drawn Boy, Damon, and we were having a conversation like me and you. And I was like, you've no idea how much your music got me through so much stuff. And I had to start, like we were talking for an hour and a half the first time. And I said, I've just got to tell you, Damon, you had me crying at Bridgewater Hall because I split up a girlfriend at the time and you started playing how um, I was in floods of tears. And I've got to tell you because I don't never speak to you again, but that meant everything to me. And everybody to, to, to a person throughout the book, not just the music, uh, was just so humbling in their achievements they hadn't done it with the sort of pedestal that yeah look at me you know to put themselves on a platform what they were creating was first and foremost it wasn't about personality put into the forefront it was very much about the art especially in the, in the music side and and i think there was a thing particularly around those i know not so much these days because they're getting older but there was certainly a feeling when even after elbow won the brits and various other things you know you'd still see guy in the temple of convenience and three nights a week four nights a week and so <laughs> there was still a very much a feeling that unlike oasis who left and indeed i was living in london and i lived in belsize park and he lived noel moved down and lived in a georgian mansion on the street behind us as we were living in a effectively a, a service you know um a council house effectively on the next street so we were very much the poor neighbors um but they moved out as soon as they could which you didn't get the sense with those bands that, that manchester was still very much core to what they did and then the other the other set of stories that you tell which is a particular bugbear of mine is the stories of um sometimes the story of popular culture in manchester is very very white um so you know there have been various stories about um, you know, the, the the first club in the 70s that was racially mixed and playing loads of music. And obviously we, we talk a lot about the Twisted twisted Wheel, which is again, you know, the, the other hacienda in terms of its influence. Um, but you do tell a, a few stories about um, particularly women of colour who have been almost ignored. And um, tell us the story of Diane Charlemagne, because I think that's a really, really interesting one about her impact and her involvement. And what, why have we, why is her name not as well known as uh, Sean Ryder, for instance? 
You tell me, that's the answer I want. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, when I started looking into I was aware of Diane's um, music and contributions, obviously, to the Goldie record, but also um, the, as part of the Urban Cookie Collective. But even when I started scratching the surface and seeing the performance that she did at Glastonbury on the pyramid stage where Moby just gave her full reign of the anyway, and Moby didn't touch the rest. No, the rest, I've watched the whole set and Moby doesn't touch that performance. Absolutely incredible. And it's like, again, this is a city that's supposed to celebrate diversity in, in, in all its forms. And here we have uh, a black woman who's no longer with us amazing musician like absolutely nailed it across so many genres was the voice of the crossover record for drum and bass music into the charts and she's just lost to the footnotes of this uh, of the canon of manchester music i find it i find it really offensive to be honest on on, on her behalf because i think we should be, we should definitely be doing better than that and you can you can same with um carolina hearn with the royal family well how often do we how often do we celebrate her brilliance in the, uh, on the media side we don't do it but we're all like, oh, manchester's such a diverse city so welcome and stuff yeah but here's all the here's all the white guys with guitars let's talk about them and it's exactly the same all, all the time and you, i was i was cautious that me talking about that sort of thing might get me into some sort of trouble or piss people off because I, i'm i wasn't downplaying everybody else's contributions i'm just saying well why are you not on a level footing with why is everybody else not on the same thing finley quay again wasn't born in Manchester, went to the same high school as me, um, you know, written uh, his Brit Award debut album, Four Streets Away From My House, not celebrated as part of the, the Manchester uh, canon. But then you get a band like the Charlatans, who the majority of them are from the West Midlands, but they're, but they're Mancunian bands. So why is that? And there's a lot of questions that you need to be asked. If you look at someone like uh, Tundi Babalola, like what he was creating on the drum and bass scene, like he's literally got a Broadway play coming out next year, right? which is, is insane. And we don't celebrate him as part of Manchester's um, Manchester's canon. And I think one of the most infuriating things for me was it's the it's the you can't quantify because we haven't celebrated them in the past the knock on effect that they could have had. So if you so if you if you're a young musician or you're you're a young person of color and you're looking to try and aspire to a career as being a musician and you grew up in Manchester, if you've not been shown that people have done it before you from around the corner, then you've got to have a certain amount of confidence to, to, to push through because you need these breadcrumbs from people that have, you know, been through the door before you to show you that it is possible. And if you look at, if you look post, post elbow, I mean, what, what big music came out of the city, the Cortinas, I mean, I know, not no disrespect to them, but you know, that they follow a type of music, don't they? You know what I mean? They, they follow one from the, the so-called Manchester brand, as I put it. But yeah, it's, it's just like so, so many. And Sylvia Teller as well is another amazing musician that uh, she can sell out gigs in Jamaica, in Russia, in Africa, but walks down Market Street and nobody knows who she is. It's it's insane that these sort of stories... I mean, I was amazed that nobody had actually written a book about it, to be honest. When the more you know, the more I started digging into it, you're like, God, I've, I've literally struck gold here. And I'm thinking, I better finish it before somebody else jumps out and, and, and does it before. That's me. the next book then, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for those who don't know, Sylvia Teller is a global reggae megastar um, who comes from and still lives in Manchester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yep. um, I mean, I, I've always thought that must be actually quite nice that you can go to global, you know, whatever, be celebrated all over the world. And actually in your hometown, nobody particularly recognises <laughs> you. Yeah. You can still go to the shops. Um, we've talked about loads of things. I, w I did want to talk about clubs and stuff, um, uh, particularly Jilly's Rock World and the importance of Satan's Hollow, but um, we might come back to those in a, in a future one. The final chapter is um, sort of what is a Mancunian? What does it mean to be a Mancunian? It becomes, you know, the Liam swagger and um, a, a sort of Larry view of the world, uh, which comes through in some, some of the, the celebrations, even post the arena bomb that came through is like, you know, we need to celebrate that almost a 
almost like on a on a grand scale, the Millwall, everybody hates us, we don't care, which is utterly untrue, because as far as I'm aware, everybody quite likes Mancunians, to be honest, except for in a football context. Um, you don't really come to a conclusion, but what are your thoughts about what is a Mancunian? What What, what is the essence of Manchester? I mean, that that's I, I purposely left it open, you know, unanswered because it's down to an interpretation and whether you can, I mean, it's, it's like grabbing cigarette smoke, isn't it? I don't, I don't think you can hold on to it. That's, that's what, that's, you know, I don't think you can grasp it. If anything, I find ourselves very self-deprecating. I think humour is a strong thing that runs through everyone, especially when I just look at the Mancunians, if they're sort of the demographic that <laughs> that, that, that I'm looking at for attributes. I just think it's our humour, but I, I, again, I don't know how different Mancunians are compared to Liverpool, aside from the accent. Like, I, I've got loads of mates in Liverpool, and like they're exactly the same, just the accent's different. Sheffield, the same. Newcastle. So I, I, I think, and I think this is something that, a lot of people are taught to now are getting quite fed up with the um the the proud of being from Manchester, but I don't think that they like the I think I refer to it as like civic jingoism where it's like this sort of yeah we're better than everybody else because that used to be the that used to be the thing that at least when I was growing up we'd always point down to Cockneys or Southerners as being up their own ass because of how much they, they, you know the, the, the self-belief that used to be the thing that we sort of take to bring them down a peg with him who do you think you are that that was the thing and i think there's some of that creeping into manchester now in terms of like it's massively successful in terms of i don't know the the regeneration project so you know it's a, it's a safer city center and stuff and it keeps getting this lonely planet you know number one place to visit or whatever and which, which is, is is brilliant but you tell that to the person who's um who's panhandling on the mancunian way that manchester's a great place you tell that to the food banks in lemon that i drive past at least twice a week when there's people queuing outside it's not the best place in the world for them is it and i think the more that we talk about uh, how great it is we don't look at the the problems that we have and i think that that there's a wider and wider gulf coming because we don't want to address the other issues and that goes to, to uh, the poverty or it goes down to the crime or the schools that are, get that, that are being left behind but I don't know how much that's actually changed because Manchester City Centre nobody could live live there nobody lived there in 96 and this is what everybody said from Tom Bloxon to Jay Taylor everyone said you had India House but nobody else lived in Manchester City Centre and now it's like well 25 years later nobody can afford to live in Manchester Manchester City Centre. So I'm not too sure how much we've done, except we've got like a shiny glass buildings. But I, I, I love the place, and I just I don't think you can put down a certain attribute in the same way you can't say what a Manchester music is. I don't think you can say that there's one thing that keeps us soul in Mancunian, uh, keeps us unique to to other places. Uh, I just think it's very much if it's north and south, then I think we we, we have differences. But I, I don't, I can't see much. And I think this is why I say to a lot of my mates who are from Newcastle, Liverpool, I say it's about Mancunians, but it's about growing up in a city that's got such a strong identity that it sort of, you know, puts itself upon you. And that's what it's about, really. The book is all, the whole thing's about identity and what that actually means trying to come up in a, in a city that has such a perceived strong one, I guess. Cool. And finally, is there another book coming? Is, have you got plans underway? Uh, I've, I've had a couple of offers from a couple of publishers. Um, I'm just trying to bide my time because... Two and a half years invested into something is, is a long time. And whilst I absolutely adored writing it, I want to make sure that whatever the next project is, it's something that I can, I'll, I'll enjoy as much. Otherwise, if I sign off and I'll, I'll take this next project, and then you're like two months in and you're like, oh God, I've got <laughs> I should have researched this there. But there are 200,000 words to write. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> the, 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 there'll definitely be another book coming. Um, I'm just trying to work out which, uh, which, one, to, which, which one to write. Brilliant. Um, so Mancunians from Manchester University Press in all good bookshops. Uh, buy physical if you can. If you can't, buy digital. Um, 
where can people find out more about stuff about you you and what you do david uh, if they go on my social media so it's at arkid a-r-g-h kid uh so on twitter and, and instagram that is that itself was a parody on the old our kid but that didn't seem to that didn't seem to um everyone thought i was trying to follow up false fall in suit with the liam gallagher brothers it, it didn't like didn't work as planned that one <laughs> yeah the arg in that is quite yeah. relevant isn't it thank you very much <laughs> no problem at all Thanks to David. Thanks also to Keisha and Rose. I hope you enjoyed listening to the three participants this time. Thank you to them and to Veronica, our excellent producer. The next Cottonmouth will be the last in the current form as we have plans for a new format and focus, as David sort of mentioned in his interview. I've been promising the next actual episode for at least four months, so hopefully it will be worth waiting for. In the meantime, you can contact us on podcasts at cityco.com on the old email and at CottonmouthMCR on Twitter. Have a good June.